This is Matt Freitas, and you're listening to the Late Night History Podcast. Tonight's guest is with Dick Holm, a former paramilitary officer, operations officer, and station chief with the Central Intelligence Agency. Dick served 35 years with the CIA under 13 directors and is the recipient of the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, an award given to CIA personnel for extraordinary achievements in service. Dick is also the author of the memoir, The Craft We Chose, My Life in the CIA. For the most part, we discuss Dick's extraordinary life while working for the CIA between the 1960s and the 1990s. We cover his fascinating work in Laos as a paramilitary officer. Then later, Dick's remarkable story of survival after being severely wounded in a plane crash in the Congo. As a result of the crash, Dick was burned over 35% of his body, including his face and hands. He even lost one eye in surgery. Despite this, Dick would continue to serve at CIA, including critical assignments like running operations into China from Hong Kong, founding the counterterrorism group, known today as the Counterterrorism Mission Center, and serving multiple station chief positions throughout his career. So here is episode 27 of the Late Night History Podcast with my guest, Dick Holm. college, I had to go into the military. This was in the early 60s. And um, I did. And my first assignment was to France. Sounds good. Uh, Somebody had to go and I enjoyed it, I must say, but it it gave me an introduction to military intelligence. That was my job over there. And as a result, I, I, I thought, well, I like intelligence work. I like living abroad. I'm very anti communist. So I, I had a rush to guns to a couple of CIA officers over there, and then I, I wrote and asked if I could um, join. They wrote back and said, we can't talk to you while you're overseas, but if you, when you get back, if you want to stop by, we'll talk to you then. And that's what I did. I, um, when, I was, when I left the Army, I drove right to Washington, D.C., and was what they call a walk-in. I just walked in the door and said, I'd like to work here, and... After some interviews and tests and things, they said, okay. And uh, so I joined the CIA in in June of 61. And the CIA was, uh, so before the CIA was the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. Um, Can you kind of talk about, um, like, the OSS and then how it transitioned into the CIA? Sure. The Office of Strategic Services was essentially our um, civilian intelligence bureau during World War II. While Bill Donovan, as he was known, uh, was the head of it, and and he established networks of um, his officers all over the world, really, some in India, some in Burma, some in Hong Kong, not Hong Kong at the time, but... Um, Areas where where we were we were fighting, of course, all over Europe. 
they they dropped behind lines. They they blew up. They committed sabotage and espionage in support of of our military. That was an effort, a wartime effort. And after the war ended, um, because of their successes, I think, and because of what happened at Pearl Harbor, where we were sort of caught flat-footed, the Roosevelt administration decided we should have a an intelligence community, an intelligence agency that was able to put together all the pieces of intelligence that, that the country is able to uh, collect globally. So the CIA was established in 1947. Um, it was There were a couple of other attempts earlier, but they didn't work very well. And it was, the CIA was the final version, and that, as I say, started in, in 1947. And it was tasked with collecting, analyzing, and, and disseminating intelligence on a global basis. But we had people, we would, we would deploy and assign people all over the world and then, and then collect the intelligence and, and settle it and distribute it into the government uh, where it was needed. If it, went, it might be the, the Pentagon, it might be the State Department, it might be the Commerce Department, it might be any, any arm of the executive branch. But... The, the president and his cabinet need current intelligence on what's going on in the world. And that was really the responsibility then given to the CIA to to collect and, and disseminate that intelligence. And then when you joined uh, CIA, you had to go through some special training because you wanted to go into the, was it called the clandestine service at that time? Um, no, it was, it was um, early on, it was called the clandestine service. Yeah, later it, it was changed, but but it was then it was the clandestine service. And yeah, the, the the first year of my employment essentially was in training. Uh, first, I I went down to what we fondly called the farm, which is uh, an installation in southeastern Virginia, and there we did basic um, collection and interrogation and reports writing and surveillance operation, the whole panoply of, of trade crafts that, that you deploy when you're, uh, when you're assigned overseas. That took uh, about nine months. And it was pretty strenuous. We, we had lectures and, and hands-on operations every day. And we, we traveled a little bit to various places to start practicing the skills. And it was, it was sort of difficult but rewarding. And that's what we all signed on for. So uh, we did it. It included um, secret writing techniques and locks and picks and um, various of the techniques that, that are deployed and used in, in tradecraft. Would some of those be like surveillance, counter surveillance, stuff like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And those we would do and practice a lot. It, it, you, you, normally, you you gotta you gotta look natural. Obviously, you can't look like you're on a surveillance operation. And so it takes practice to be able to deploy. And then we would have three man teams or five man teams, and coordinating the activities and the movements of all those people. 
uh, and that we, we also did surveillance in um, cars and those those are activities that you, you just got to work on to become proficient. And from your book, um, I read that each new um, like candidate or person going through training had a mentor. Uh, who was your mentor? I, I, I didn't have a sort of a single one, but I would, um, if I had to single somebody out, I would probably mention a guy named Bob McGee. Um, he was a younger at that time um, in terms of, He'd only been down there for a, a few months, but he was an officer who later succeeded uh, quite well, did, had a good, strong career. And he was just a, a bright guy that had good ideas. And, and I guess he sort of drew things out of me. I, I'm like, it's hard to explain. It's, it's an intangible thing, but it was between us. I had a lot of respect for him and not only was he a mentor, but he was sort of a role model as our careers progressed. He was a generation ahead of me. And who were like amongst your peers? Uh, were there fellow veterans like yourself or what kind of backgrounds did they come from? Um, at that time, um, the clandestine service, especially the, the, the younger ones, were, were made up mostly of East Coast people. Uh, young men uh, largely out of the um, the Ivy League and, and big colleges on the East Coast. And it was at that point, the the, the pattern was to, to join up right after um, you had finished college and, and a military career. Almost everybody had to ser- have serve a couple of years in the military. And there were various ways that could be done. But, uh, but that was was the norm and I was one of only uh, maybe a, a half dozen out of my starting class who was from the Midwest. The others were all from the East Coast and that was that just how it started. It was in the early years still. And um, you also volunteered for um, like an early assignment and you had to go through paramilitary training. Um, can you talk a little bit about the history of uh, paramilitary operations, maybe just uh, the OSS or whatever comes to mind? Yeah, it, as you say, the OSS, there was a lot of it. I mean, we had, for example, one of our directors, um, Bill Colby, he had been in the uh, OSS and he parachuted into Norway with a um, with a team of Norwegian Americans who were all fluent, of course, in Norwegian, they um, they blew up bridges and railroad lines and things like that. It just sabotaged so the Germans couldn't move troops. And they also dropped into France, where they did the same thing. They organized sabotage to to harass German movements. Um, just as I was joining in, in just really a couple of months before, there had been the Bay of Pigs operation, which was another paramilitary operation that um, we had, we, the agency had uh, recruited and trained uh, a lot of Cubans and and we deployed them in, into Cuba on the Bay of Pigs. But uh, the, the president changed the ground rules just as the operation was starting and there was no air cover. 
So the operation failed on the beaches and it was pretty much a disaster. Um, there were other operations in Southeast Asia, in Burma. Um, it just, it, it meant operating basically as a covert military force, but in secret and behind lines and with, with smaller units and, and clandestine targets that we would, we would strike at. When I, uh, started, I, I did volunteer for, um, service in Laos at the time we were just starting to get involved in, in Vietnam and Laos in Southeast Asia in general. And, uh, Laos was, President Kennedy decided that we were not going to deploy troops in Laos, but that we did want to help uh, the Laotians and especially the Hmong tribe to resist the Vietnamese in, in their efforts to take over Laos and Thailand, Laos and Vietnam, South Vietnam. And so I, I volunteered for that training to go out there for a six-month TDY. The training um, was also largely down at the farm. It, it was all military type training, um, weapons training with, with various different kinds of weapons, Russian weapons, Chinese weapons, others, um, map, map operations where we would navigate courses uh, through the woods so we could operate in, in, a, in a difficult terrain. Um, we had a, a week and a half of parachute training and made uh, our seven jumps down there out of out of a C-47 that we that was the agency operated. Um, it was um, difficult, but um, it was all designed to prepare us for operations um, in in Laos in support of the Hmong tribe. Included was a week. Um, down at the Jungle Warfare School in Panama, where we arrived as a as a discrete platoon, about 15 men, and we joined in with um, maybe a hundred or 150 military officers, and we all we all participated in in the operations down there, which uh, largely the same kind of thing. It included. Um, coming down a cliff on a rope. I'm trying to pull back the word right now. Oh, rappelling? Rappelling, yeah. We did rappelling down cliffs in, in um, by rivers. We did cross-river operations. We did navigating, course navigating, and it culminated in a escape and evasion couple of days where we had to just um, apparently, well, try to meet a submarine on the coast and it was a eight or ten hour walk, and we it just did it in small units, uh, evading um, patrols that were out there to try to stop us. So it was good training, and we we all uh, came away with our quote jungle expert quote badges. Um, I certainly don't think we were experts, but it was it was good introduction to the kinds of things we would see when we got out uh, into southeast asia and can you talk about like what it's what it's like to go um maybe how like if someone doesn't know how like paramilitary operations or cia operations work how do you just like go to laos and 
uh like who do you have somebody that meets you there uh like people that set up shop or you just kind of go by yourself no you don't go by yourself you um yeah we in in the in the initial parts of that operation one of our officers um bill lair was his name he managed to make contact with the head of the Hmong tribe, a guy named Fang Pao, and they agreed that um, they wanted to fight, they wanted to resist. They were mountain people, and they, they rejected any takeover by the communists. So they were willing to fight, but they had no means. And, and Bill Air said, well, we can help you. We can provide you with the means to fight, i.e., training and uh, the weapons and the wherewithal for your villages to keep on functioning despite the loss of the men who will be out doing something other than the agricultural stuff. So from there, uh, we began to send in um, materials of various sorts, I mean, weapons and ammunition. We also set up teams, and in this case, they were teams of ties that we had previously trained and we'd bring in the Thai who spoke uh, the sister language. Lao and Thai are very close. So the Thai would come in and they would do the training of the Hmong and then, and then CIA officers would go just one at a time to a zone or an area and, and supervise the Thai and the training of the, of the uh, Hmong. And then as they became functional, then we would train them in ambushes and um, road road blow, blowing up uh, mines in the roads and things like that. So when Wong and I arrived, we were met by uh, our our office, our colleagues who were already established in Vientiane, and um, and then they deployed us uh, one at a time to various zones of the Hmong territory, where we would handle maybe three or four villages at a, at a time and, and synchronize the efforts. At early on, it was largely training and organizing, um, setting up. We, we built, for example, we built a little airstrip on the mountain in the first village I lived in. And it was just literally people out there with shovels um, leveling a, a hump in the middle of a, a sort of a, a long level spot and uh, when it was done, we were able to bring in um, not only the small helios, but even a, a two-engine plane could could land there. So it um, during my period, it was it was mostly essentially getting ready to to be a a force to be reckoned with, and that that happened later in the '60s after I was gone. And one of your colleagues um, is sort of like a legendary figure with the CIA, goes by Tony Poe. Can you kind of talk about him a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Anthony Poshevsky was his name. He was he was a Marine and, and, and landed on Iwo Jima when he was 17, 18 years old, something like that. And he was sort of a legend in our in our paramilitary organization. A, a bright guy, a tough guy, but known for his uh, patriotism and his, uh, the Hmong absolutely loved him. They thought he was just, because he was willing to go out and actually um, do a lot of things rather than just talk about them. Um, 
he was over there for a long time. He was there before we got involved in Laos. He actually was in Indonesia when there was a, a revolution there and had to be um, evacuated, pulled out by submarine. They had to you know, get in a small boat and roll out and get into, get into a submarine to escape from uh, Indonesia. He was also involved in, in training in, uh, in Tibet, uh, the Tibetanists. He just was a legend in terms of the things he had done and the places he had been. And very patriotic guy and, and very, very no, known to be a fighter. He was also uh, sort of a, um, he didn't, he, he had a legend in bars as well. He did some drinking and he caroused a lot uh, in Bangkok and in Vietnam. But a, a legend, we thought. We thought. And in your book, which is called The Craft We Chose, I highly recommend anybody that listens to this podcast pick it up. Uh, you mentioned that like there was an operation where that involved him dropping grenades in a unique way from an airplane. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, uh, you know, I, of course, wasn't there, and I, I can't vouch for it, but it certainly was widely known and widely repeated in our events. Tony operated in... Uh, in the area of Samnua, and that was way up in the northeast corner of Laos, where the Hmong, there were a lot of Hmong, but it, it bordered North Vietnam. And of course, it, it, it fell under North, Viet, North Vietnamese sway early on. It actually was not, not far at all from uh, the where the French ended up. They got, oh, the name is escaping me where the French were trapped and and lost the battle of uh, okay. anyway that was right 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 near there and Tony uh, was was had intelligence from his Hmong um, troops and they knew that a Vietnamese unit was moving from one place to another um, and of course moving means walking along trails that was the only there were no roads there so Tony was able to prepare, and they, they took empty jars, empty glass jars, I think they were peanut butter jars, and they would put grenades in there and pull the pin, and the, the handle couldn't come up because it was in the jar. And then they they packed them in boxes and into, into the back of a helio courier, and then flew Caught, caught this Vietnamese unit right in the open on a trail and flew right by, right at low, low altitude, and of course surprised them, so nobody you know, could do very much. And they threw the, the jars out of the plane as, as he were going. Tony was leaning out, throwing these things, and as they hit the ground, the glass would break, of course, and then the handle would flip up and the grenades would explode. So he just went from one end to the other of this column and throwing throwing out the grenades out of the bottles and they he claims that they uh, they did they, they did a lot of damage to the Vietnamese column and of course it it was cheered all over the Hmong territory and everybody thought it was the greatest thing done and we all thought it was pretty brazen and Certainly, it was dangerous. You just don't. You don't really want to be flying around with boxes of bottles of uh, grenades in them. But, <laughs> but uh, to my knowledge, they did it. It was a renowned event for us. 
And while you're in uh, Laos, in, uh, there was an operation called uh, Operation Hard Nose. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? And also the culture of uh, bad pee? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I worked, when I got there, my first six months or so were up in the Hmong country where I lived in these, in, in the villages. And it were, they were just straw huts, really. Dirt floor, um, no running water, no lights, no nothing. Um, bathe and shave in a stream that was bloody cold. Um, so it was, it was Spartan in, in terms of the living conditions. But you, I really enjoyed living with the Hmong and working with them. They were, they were tough little guys and they were willing to fight and they, they wanted to, to keep their independence. I enjoyed that period, but then I moved down. I got reassigned after the Geneva Peace Accords were signed, and I got reassigned to central um, central Laos. But I had to live right across the river in in the Khon Phanom, a little town uh, in the northeast part of Thailand, right on the Mekong River. I mean, right there. And so I, at that from then on, I started crossing into Laos at night to meet with my team members or team leaders. And um, it was during that period that we organized um, what we call the road watch um, operation. And in, in Laos at the time, in central Laos, the North Vietnamese were operating what they called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And the Ho Chi Minh Trail was of vital importance to them. It was the way they could supply all their units and their efforts in South Vietnam to subvert the South. So, and this was very early on in, in this whole situation. And the U.S. government was sort of just discovering that there was a Ho Chi Minh Trail and, and, it, and its importance to the North Vietnamese. And I, I can remember writing an, a memo back to Washington saying, you know, this is a, this is a big problem. And, and we, we, the thing to do here is to block that trail. And I think there were elements in the Pentagon that, that essentially agreed with me. Um, we, we were, of course, never in contact. I was a, a very low-level guy sitting out on a, in, in a little town in Thailand. My memo didn't have much of an impact, but um, in later years, uh, it certainly it should have, I think. And, and no, no less than, than General Giap, who was the you know, head of all military operations in North Vietnam during the war, uh, some years after, he, he made a clear public statement, said, without the Ho Chi Minh Trail, we would never have been able to pursue the war or win the war, because there would have been no way for us to supply you know, our people. So back to when I got there, I, we, we set up an, a, a series of watch points along the, the, the few roads that led from the north into Laos and then down through Laos and then back into South Vietnam. It would bypass the demilitarized zone in the middle. So I had teams that would be, you know, sitting on a hill or in the jungle next to a road and, and they would move in there and stay for three or four days and they would, they would watch and then count for us and, and report to us the number of trucks going by or the number of troops going by or the material that they could pick out. 
and we later supplied them with photograph with cameras so they could actually photograph from afar but but get photographs of these things and we began reporting that to washington um and said you know they, yes laos is supposed to be a neutral country and we moved out according to the rules but the, the north vietnamese are totally ignoring that and they are using laos all day every day with troops and materials and everything else and that that operation was codenamed hard nose by a headquarters uh, which i thought was a perfectly good name and my my superior in in um, in thailand there thought he he loved it he thought that was a good name but the whole idea was um we were we were debating we were talking to headquarters saying it's really silly for us to move out and leave our teams alone so to speak when the north vietnamese are not moving out and we can prove it here are the photographs of them moving troops and trucks and material south to essentially invade uh, south vietnam but then that was um uh, that was called hard nose and i uh, at various times i would either go in at night across the river which was a harrowing experience for sure because we didn't know you, know, you never knew what was coming down that river it could be a tree or a whatever um, but then other times the the team leaders would come over to my residence my area in um, in Nakhon Phanom on on the Thai side of the river and I'd have meetings with them and you know I I started learning Thai and Thai is very close to um, Laotian so I was picking up enough to you know pick up the, the various responses that would come and one I noticed was that um, you know I would assign them these Lao were not the most they're not the bravest people in the world, I guess. And I would, I would say, we want to get to this point, and I'd look at the map, point at the map, and they, and they, one of the responses that came out was, there were P, and it's a, it's a Lao word meaning spirits, and these P were evil spirits, and they couldn't go on that particular hill or in that particular area because of the evil spirits, not because they were afraid of the Vietnamese. They, what they were saying to me was, so I got pretty familiar with that as a, as a response and had to start to try to come up with them and preempt them by saying, uh, we want to move to this area where there are no P, I would say. <laughs> so that was, it, 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 this, the spiritual things were, were very real to those guys. And they, and then, of course, they, they grew to start to use them. I was there one, at one night I was over and I, I heard a lot of wild gunfire and thought, my God, it's uh, the, the Vietnamese are raiding this, this little town right on the river, which would have been a big surprise to everybody. But it turned out that a, it was a uh, an eclipse of the moon. But from the Lao perspective, it, it, what happened is that a giant frog had jumped on the moon and blocked off the view. That's, so that was explained to me by my interpreter in the morning at night and the way to get the frog off was to shoot and make noise so <laughs> that that noise i had heard in the in the in that night was the, the lao banging on pots and pans and shooting their rifles in the air and, and making all the noise they could to frighten the frog to get him off the moon i was 
dumbfounded, but uh, accepted that that was the way it is. That's the culture that was going on. Yeah, that must have been pretty wild. Just having somebody explain that through an interpreter in your in your mind, you're probably like, "What is happening right now?" Yeah, I mean, I was I was pretty much convinced that there was a raid going on, and I was crouching in the doorway with my weapon, and I was alone that night, uh, so I wasn't quite sure what was happening. And then, you know, it stopped pretty much the way it had started, and <laughs> so the next morning I said, "What the hell was going on last night?" and uh, the interpreter explained it to me. What uh, what kind of weapon did you carry? Uh, it it varied. Um, when I first got out there, I was carrying a, a, a an M1, a World War II version of M1 rifle. Um, like like some of the Hmong, but the Hmong were too small, and that weapon was 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 bigger than some of them were, or close to it. And then and then ultimately. Uh, they they got to like the carbine, an M2, which was a smaller, lighter weapon, and it became clear that you know the M1 has a, has more range and more accuracy. But when you're in the mountains and in the jungle, uh, you don't you don't have much range to cover. You just want firepower. So I I started in in the Hmong country, I carried a carbine, and in the, in the down in the central Laos. You know, I I didn't need a weapon as much because I wasn't I didn't go into the into the combat zones very often, uh, and, but I did carry um, an M1 when I was in the in central Laos. And when you're living amongst the Hmong people, um, can you talk about some memorable food experiences that you had? Yeah, the obviously the, you know the food is is really quite different and. You have to be sort of experimental in, in terms of when in the Lao in the Lao uh, country, well up in the mountains with the Hmong, um, it was the Thai guys. I lived essentially with a Thai uh, unit, five men um, that that worked with me and for me. And they, we had a, a weapons man, we had a, a medic. And a couple of trainers, and and then I was the head of this group, and they just cooked themselves, and they would of course always cook for me, and they were very very solicit- very kind to me, and and did everything that they could to keep me, you know, as happy as possible. So you'd get pieces of chicken, pieces of pork, pieces of well, I mean. I, it was never quite certain whether it was some kind of beef. It could have been horse meat. It could have been water buffalo. It could have been, it was just, um, I, I didn't know and I didn't ask a lot of questions. And be, because of that situation, and of course that was why in Southeast Asia in general, they eat a lot of peppers and a lot of, there's a lot of spicy food. It sort of camouflages the taste that you're getting out of the, the meat. And, and of course, vegetables as, as well, just boiled vegetables. So it, it was uh, it was <laughs> it was always an experience to try to. Actually, when it, it, one of the stories up there was that they, on on some occasions, it was monkey brains, and they would they would stick the head of a monkey up through the hole a hole in a in a board, and then. 
slice off the top with with a with a machete and hand you a spoon. Um, that that I never uh, never got used to. I didn't get into that. And, it, and the, the the Hmong ate what they called sticky rice, which was just that. It was glutinous, and you you could form it into little balls in your hand, and it. Uh, it wasn't like steamed white rice. It was mountain rice with, uh, with a glutinous side to it. So the food was always uh, an adventure. When I got to um, central, down in the central area, in, in the, and I was living in Nakompanom, there was actually a, a little restaurant right on the river, right on the Mekong River, with a Chinese uh, chef, so to speak, he had a walk in, in which he cooked everything that we ate, and um, we had we had interesting dinners there. And that was good food. I mean, it was it was basically Thai and Chinese, and it was and they were very tasty meals that we had there, along with um, Singha beer, which was the local Chinese uh, Thai beer, and um, pretty tasty. Uh, it was, we we certainly we certainly grew to like it and. We drove the um, the waitresses a little. They got frantic sometimes because in 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 those restaurants, when you finished um, a, a bottle of beer, it just sat on the table empty. And then when they were going to do the check, they would count the number of bottles, and that was that added to your check and added to the food. And on on some nights, when if you know you might have had more more than you you maybe should have. We, we took to throwing the bottles into the Mekong River and uh, the waitresses were dismayed and upset and kept running around. That didn't happen all that often, but it was uh, young men out in a tough, strange area and sometimes you just let loose a little bit. And before we dive into uh, the Congo, uh, I just kind of want to touch on, you have a brother um, who was a force recon Marine in that area at that time, but you weren't aware at the same time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that, um, my, my brother, you're, you're younger than me. You know, he was a Marine Corps officer and he was in active duty in Vietnam. And of course I did not know this at the time. We later, you know, were able to compare notes, but, um, while I was in the Companome, in central Laos, right near the the um, demilitarized zone, he was posted in in I Corps of of North Viet- of South Vietnam, right near the southern side of that zone. And his job was um, force recon, which means um, long distance um, patrols, and and of course they were looking at the at the Ho Chi Minh Trail as well. We, as I said, we were just, U.S. was just discovering it, and they knew of it, and they were trying to, you know, collect as much and, and understand what was happening. So he was leading patrols into the, the demilitarized zone and into central Laos at that, at that very point. And I was sending in teams to the same area at the same time, trying to watch the roads and discover what they were doing. Now, I, I only went in with the teams a couple times. I wasn't really authorized to go in, but I a couple times I did. But um, 
we we could have been within a few well 20 20 kilometers or so of each other in in southeast asia and of course and had no idea that that i had no idea he was anywhere around and he had no idea i was anywhere around and our mother was at home and we were both sending letters saying nothing goes nothing much going on here mom we're all everything's fine we're just we're okay (laughs) we were trying to protect of course all she knew was that she had two sons in southeast asia and she was not happy about it so (laughs) and uh can you talk about you um after that um after that tour you went to the congo the listener I had Jim Hawes, who was on episode 12, I think, or it might have been episode 14, and he was there in 1965, but I understand you were in there in the Congo in 1964. Yeah, but just to, to round up Laos, I uh, at one point I, re- I reviewed, it, it was the kind of a tour, it was my first tour, and I was, of course, very happy to be, we, we thought we were there to to fight communism and hold them back, and, and that's what we were doing. But in the course of it, it, it never goes as, 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 as you would sort of like it to. And I, I wrote a review when I was at headquarters one point of, of a book called Shadow War uh, in Laos, and it, it it occurred to me that we, here we were a bunch of bright, qualified, trained young men over there doing what we thought was the best we could do. And we did a lot of good things, but at the same time there was graft and there was corruption in, in Vientiane and there was political infighting and there were factions within the royal family of Laos. And despite our efforts and despite, I mean, our whole effort in Southeast Asia, there we were with, you know, the, the modern weapons of war you know, the best air force in the world. We completely controlled all the skies and yet we lost. And it was, it was a big sore point for a lot of us because the Hmong suffered a great deal that their tribe was, was decimated and many of them had to become refugees. A lot of them are now in Minnesota or California. And, and we lost a lot of prestige and it was essentially a political failure on, on on our part here at home that you know the Johnson administration just seemed to be way more interested in the in domestic affairs here than than taking seriously what would happen was happening in and the South Vietnamese were perfectly willing to fight they won a lot of battles they they could have done a lot more but you know we just basically pulled out and left and it was it was dismaying to a lot of us for sure anyway that ended in for me in august of uh, 64 and i was assigned back to headquarters got there and at the time we we had some officers a lot of people were had been taken captive hostage by the Simba revolution in, in Northeast Congo. They overran a city called Stanleyville and our, our officers there had been, were, we were being held hostage in, in a prison in Stanleyville. And um, our, our effort of course was to try to, to solve, resolve that situation and save them. So I was, I, I showed up at headquarters 
to to work in Africa Division, and you know they they took one look and said, you know, "How would you like to go to Stanleyville and and take over the base?" I was a young young officer, but with some paramilitary experience. I spoke some French. I was single. I just sort of a, a good candidate for them, and I of course said, "Sure." Put me in, Coach. I mean, I'm happy to, to, you know, do whatever I can to help the cause. So I spent a couple of months while we were still working up a plan to free the hostages. And I was just preparing to go over and become the chief of base in uh, Stanleyville. The operation worked just as planned. We, with U.S. planes, dropped Belgian paratroopers um, at the airport in Stanleyville completely by surprise. The Simbas were shocked. They they ran around shooting and killed about 30 people, including several Americans, but, but our officers were able to uh, hide and, and escape. And then they moved very swiftly in, into the city and, and occupied everything, sent the Simbas running in all directions. And so um, that was on Thanksgiving of 64. And it was a couple of weeks later is when I arrived there and started to um, re- reorganize our network of, of agents and contacts. But it was really, uh, my arrival was premature because a lot of people were still hiding in the jungle outside of Sandyville and in other places in Northeast Congo. So it was difficult for me to make any progress at all. And I, uh, ultimately moved over to um, Bunya, which is right on the border with Uganda. And from there, I was um, I was trying to make contact with a couple people, did make contact with, with two. Uh, then I decided to do a reconnaissance of the border with Sudan because we, we thought we had intelligence saying they were bringing in weapons and material across the border from Sudan. And there were only a couple of roads, so I wanted to fly over those and see if I could figure out, you know, who was coming and and via what areas that we might be able to monitor it. And that was when I uh, had an airplane crash, and my tour in Congo ended at that at that point. And can you briefly talk about what happened with uh, the plane crash, and then? Um some of your injuries and just kind of talk about what happened there. We, um, we flew out of Bunya and uh, we did spot a couple of trucks and attack them. Um, couldn't tell whether we got them or not because they pulled in under some trees. But just as we finished that attack, we ran into a giant thunderstorm. And mind you, this is, middle of Africa uh, in 1964. There are no beacons, no weather forecasts, no nothing. You knew you were in a storm when you when you got in a storm. And it was a particularly severe one. It threw us all over the sky. And the two pilots, I was with, I was flying in a T-28. There were, there were two Cubans, two Cuban pilots, two planes and me in, in the back of one of them. In the, in the in the seat in the, the rear seat there's a cockpit and I was in the seat behind the pilot 
So when we finished and got out of the storm, we were lost. Just they were completely had no idea where we were. And, and we, we tried to get up enough altitude to see if we could see one of the, one of the lakes there, Lake Tanganyika. We, we could not, and we were running low on gas. So, and it was, it was getting later in the day. So finally they decided that we would have to, um, to crash land. I pointed out that we both had parachutes. Why shouldn't we just, just jump? And it was then that I discovered that most pilots, you know, are very reluctant to jump out of their airplane. They don't like parachute jumping. They, they feel like they could bring it in and, and survive the crash rather than jump. And, and you can't just jump out of an airplane by yourself. I mean, he's not gonna, he has to open the canopy and has to have the right altitude and the right attitude. And, I mean, you just, it's not feasible. So I, we, we were going to crash land. He looked for a clearing, spotted what one of the best things he could tell he could see. And we, uh, we came in low and trying to slow down, but the T-28 is, uh, it's just a, a big hunk of metal with stubby wings and a lot of weight and a big engine just to keep it going. And you, it doesn't, you, it stalls at, 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 if the speed gets too low. So it was a pretty hot landing, as they say. And we, we skidded in on the stomach of this T-28. And then we, we it was, there was not enough room. And we, we ran into a tree and the wing broke. Um, and um, the canopy was open because we didn't want it to get jammed and, and be unable to get out. So we were able to um, slide. And when it, when a wing broke, a splash of ignited fuel hit me on the side of my head. I was still in the, in the seat. So my body essentially was okay, but I, my, my arms, hands and face got, hit with this flaming fuel. And of course that was a, I was shocked and the pilot didn't realize that he jumped out, ran next to the plane and was yelling for me to get out because the plane was burning. And, um, so I, I had to use my elbows to get the seatbelt open and then stumbled out of the plane on the, on the right hand side, because I could sense my eyes were, singed and closed and I couldn't open, I couldn't see anything. So I, I sort of half fell out of the cockpit on the, on the right hand side, away from the, what I sensed was the flaming side, landed on the wing and then slid off the wing and the pilot was there to, to grab me. And we, we moved away from the uh, plane. And as we moved away, it, uh, it exploded, partially exploded. And I caught some slivers of metal in my shoulder, which, which I didn't, I barely felt. I didn't realize that until some, some time later in the hospital, they, they found it. Um, but you know, we spent the night in the jungle. Uh, he led me down by a stream and, and it was a lot of pain and a, and a difficult night. Following the morning, we, uh, 
we realized that I wasn't going to be able to do very much at all. So um, we said, just, you got to find out where we are. Um, you, so do 100 yards this way and then 100 yards that way and, and then start to know the, the area. And he did that for a day. We were looking for a road or a, a, a telephone wire or anything just to give us a bearing. And on the, the second day, he he ran into a village. He actually went, went and saw it. And it was, you know, I, I was basically uh, in a lot of pain and sort of in a half coma at that at that point. I had no no knowledge. It wasn't following. And he told me that he when he went to the village, all the men were out in the fields working, and it was just women and children. But then, as as he was talking to them, the men came back, and uh, he told them he was. A, an elephant hunter, which I don't, I don't know what, what caused him to come up with that, but happily, the, uh, the head of the village had been trained by British missionaries, and he spoke English. So the pilot was able to explain what had happened, that, and that I was out by the plane and I was injured. Um, the, the villagers came out, and they had a, a couple of sort of like limbs with, with shirts in between, and that became a stretcher, which they loaded me on and lugged me into the village. Um, a lot of the burns had started to scab over by that time, and, and this when I was when they loaded me on it, it broke them open, and the, and there were bugs that had gotten into the uh, into the burns. So the villagers had a conference. And again, happily, the, the Simbas had killed the chief of the village's brother, and that made him anti-Simba, very anti-Simba. And they were still roaming. It was in the far, far northeast of the Congo, almost at the Sudanese border. In fact, when we finally figured it out. And they, they said that they would hide me outside their village because if if the Simba patrol came through and found me, then everybody would be punished. So they hid me in a you know like a makeshift hut, a kilometer or so outside the village, and sent the pilot with three other villagers, the, the chief of the village and two or to get to the nearest place we knew was safe, which was a little town called Paulus, and. Uh, and that's what they did. They had, they had, they took the, the four bicycles that were in the village, and they rode mostly at night, and then hid during the daytime. And it took them nine or ten days, and they finally made it to a Belgian checkpoint just by Paulus. And uh, it was at that point that the, the, I mean, the alarm had been had been spread all around. When we didn't return from our from our mission, the two planes were missing, and so everybody in the northeast Congo, all all the friendly people knew, but they just waited and waited and waited, and uh, finally, when they got to that Belgian point, they they realized what had happened, and we were. So the Belgians literally sprang into action and sent cables everywhere, and. It, 
down to Leopoldville and then back to Washington and back to Brussels. And, and they requested authority to, to try to come and rescue me. And of course that was granted immediately. And well, in fact, that afternoon, you know, after afternoon time, they set off with a couple of helicopters and a C-47 and a T-28. And the, the village chief sitting in, in one of the helicopters, they, they had no idea where the hell they were going, but they knew it was a couple of, they had a couple of checkpoints and they had the village chieftain. They actually found the village. Um, and then one of the, one of the helicopters had engine problems and, and essentially crash landed. Uh, which is, and of course I'm at that point in a coma and didn't know what was going on, but the Belgians were undeterred. They, uh, they dropped weapons to the people in that helicopter just in case. And they, uh, they made it back to their base in Paulus and then, uh, sunlight the next morning, they, they returned and were able to get me and the, uh, and the, guys who were in the helicopter that went down. And during that period, that evening, the the pilot of the helicopter that went down, plus the doctor that was with him, were, were brought out to me, and the doctor confirmed that I was still alive and kicking, and um, so they, they radioed up and said, okay, we, we'll be back in the morning. And that was what happened. And how were you able to survive for 10 days straight? Um... Can you talk a little bit about the witch doctor and maybe something, how you ate? Because at the time you were blind, you had severe injuries to your head and your hands. Can you kind of just touch on that a little bit? Yeah, that was, you know, you, you, uh, the body, I guess, has a protective mechanism. And you and I really was basically in a coma and I, I didn't remember a whole lot. I remember them at one point trying to, te- to feed me pineapples and uh that caused me to retch and vomit and i couldn't do it so i think all i had during that period was um was just water and um, i would come to periodically and then periodically i would go into a lot of pain and have wild dreams um there was somebody with me the whole time i'm pretty sure and and they would give me water and, and that was how it set up i mean i Jumping ahead, when I did get to the hospital in Texas, I, I I found that I'd lost about 40 pounds during that 10-day, 12-day period, um, maybe something close to that. But but while I was there, they 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 helped me, and early on, they there was a they brought their doctor, and I said, you know, here's I could. I, I understand. I said, no, that's all right. I'll wait for my own doctor. You know, you don't have to. I mean, I'm thinking, what do these guys know about how to treat serious burns? And uh, turns out that, that they just sort of stood me up and they they took their knives and, and cut out all the bugs that were into my hands and my burns and, and uh, emptied as much as they could. And then they smeared, uh, which is what they did for their... When everybody, everybody got burned, they had a potion, and it was uh, it was a mixture of snake fat and tree barks and herbs and I don't know what, but it was like an ointment, and they smeared it all over my burns. Um, 
and it clearly saved my life. When I got to the burn center um, in Texas, they, they couldn't believe I'd been that long without any treatment with severe burns. But um, this stuff hardened on there, and unfortunately it turned to sort of a dark bluish black. And uh, when I, when I, the first stop was, they picked me up in Paulus and I, I went to Leopoldville, which is the capital of the country, and there was a hospital there. And they took me in there and the doctor took one look and thought, this is gangrene. There's no, there's no hope here. And he just, you know, he just left. This was the U.S. doctor. But the Belgian doctor, a, a Bush doctor who had been there for a long time, he may have recognized what it was. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, don't, I never got any details. But, but he, uh, he just did IVs. I, I don't even know how he did that because my arms were, were, were burned, my hands. But he uh, he started loading me up with nutrients and antibiotics and solutions and and it that essentially helped me to try to recover enough that they thought I could make a transatlantic flight and uh, the agency and the defense department organized a uh, a flight to come and get me one guy one hurt guy our director called. The Secretary of Defense and said, "We got a guy that's hurt in the Congo. Can you go get him?" And the, and the only question was, "Is he still alive?" And he said, "Yep." So, uh, so we sent a 707 jet from McGuire Air Force Air Force Base all the way to Leopoldville, picked me up, and then and then started back across the Atlantic. And the doctor was talking to the pilot and said. You know, I think he's going to make it. We should just go straight to Texas, not stop in Brazil for refueling. So they did. They just flew from Leopoldville all the way to San Antonio, Texas, where the burn center is, the National Burn Center. And I was met there, and then uh, they spent a lot of time with me, and and I made it. <laughs> And how long did you spend in um, in the hospital? Well, I, it, the initial recovery was in Texas about two months. I didn't, I of course had no idea I had been out that long. When the, the agency also flew my parents down there, and the first thing I, I realized when I finally was sort of coherent again was that my dad was in the room. And, and I immediately sort of relaxed and almost had a relapse. They, they said, I just, I sort of stopped fighting and just relaxed. And, and but they, then they, they gave me something. I'm not sure it was, but once I knew they were there, I, I figured I was safe again. And uh, so I did initial skin grafts and initial treatments down in, uh, in, in the burn center for about two months. And then I was moved up to Walter Reed Hospital in, in uh, Washington, D.C. There I spent another year and a half. A total, it was about two years with 36 or seven operations, mostly skin grafts and, and hand operations. Is there any, a, 
Oh, sorry to cut you off. Um, is there any truth to um, the burn center sending their own doctors to the Congo to figure out what that paste was? That's what they told me. I, while I was in Texas, they, you know, they did their daily rounds and there were doctors from all over the world that would come to visit there because it was a, a burn center. And, you know, they would, I would lie there and they would talk about the situation and it, it took them a lot of time to pull off all that snake fat, you know, the, the herb, the ointment that they'd stuck on. That was, that was also very painful because they had to just literally pull pieces of it off and my flesh and skin would come with it. So. But um, one doctor was from, I think Sudan or Africa. And he took one look at me and said, he, and they said, he said, Oh, you do that too. And they said, what? And he said, put, put that ointment on the, and they said, no, what is it? You know, they, they weren't sure. But um, they, they learned a lot from his visit. And then um, they realized that it had saved. This was in the early years of Vietnam when there were a lot of burns and, and problems from there. So they realized that it, it had helped a lot. And they wanted to know more about it. So they told me that two Air Force doctors were actually sent to the Congo to explore and to ask questions and try to get samples of what this was. And that's where, that's where we discovered that it was partly snake fat and tree bark and what, they, they had a mixture of what it was that they set up. And then they revised some of the treatments at, at the burn center to, to take advantage of this fact that if you cover it up right away, um, it's gonna, you know, you, you will avoid infection coming in and, and, and fluids flowing out. So that burn patients die from either infection or dehydration is the two leading causes. So if you could start working against those two things, you're a step ahead of the game. And they, that's what they decided that they, they would take advantage of knowing what that was. And how were you able to mentally and physically recover? Can you talk about some of your um, like you were, when the plane crash happened, you were blinded, but then you regained some of your sight. Um, can you kind of talk about, uh, how you were able to recover and then why you decided to stay within the CIA and continue your career? Yeah, when I, when I got back to Texas, um, they realized that you know, I, I, that's when I lost one eye. They had to get my dad's permission to remove my left eye because of the burns. And they didn't want it to affect the nerve of the right eye. But the right eye was also uh, scarred. And so I couldn't see anything out of out of there. Um, that that lasted for about a year. And, and back in when I was back in Walter Reed, is when the, we, the, the, the trauma had left and I was able to have a, what they called a, a partial transplant of my cornea and that, that they did that and I regained vision up to about 2040, which was, which is really was great for me. I mean, I, that, that made a, made a big difference of course in, in my life. Um, but that it, it's, I never considered not going back to work. I just was anxious to, you know, to get recovered and get back into the ball game. That was, uh, I, I think you, you, 
there's a little bit of intestinal fortitude that you gotta come up with and you, you can't you, you just certainly can't give up i mean there the only alternative would have been to start collecting disability pay and, and end up well i mean i was in my mid-20s i wasn't ready for something like that i, I said you know i'm certainly gonna fight this you know all the way through and and that's what what happened i I would have an operation and I'd start to recover and then I'd have another operation and I'd start to recover and then I'd have another. And it went on for two years, but uh, little by little, I could see that was I was making progress and more and more functional with my hands. And uh, and then the vision thing was, was a big step forward when that operation was successful. Uh, and by the end of two years, I was, you know, while I was still in the hospital, I... I started taking Mandarin Chinese lessons with the idea of shifting from um, my Africa division assignment to going into a, a assignment with what we call China operations. And I thought, I, you know, just move in a different direction. I was disgruntled with Africa. I didn't, I didn't want to go back and, and have any tours there. So um, I headed off in a new direction and started studying and, uh, and getting ready to go back to work. And in the spring of um, 66, no, yeah, yeah, spring of 66, uh, I reported back to work at our headquarters. And I just want to skip ahead a little bit. Um, so you were at the headquarters for, was that for a couple of years before you went to Hong Kong? Um year and a half, I, 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 I actually went into the Chinese language training program. Um, I was welcomed into, into East Asia division where China operations is. The, the, the head of the division was a, a guy who had been the chief of station in Laos and he knew me and he knew about me and he knew the things I had accomplished in Laos and he was perfectly happy to have me come back in the division. So, um, he set up this training and I, I started studying Mandarin and uh, and you know studied that for almost a year uh, at headquarters and then and then was, was assigned to uh, Hong Kong and um so the Soviet Union is known as or at the time it was known as the Iron Curtain can you talk about why Hong Kong was called the Bamboo Curtain sure the the the, um, the Cold War you know they invent these these names for things, and as as Russia took control in Eastern Europe, you know the, the story is that they he, they established an iron curtain across all the frontiers, and precluded any any action, any movement, any travel into their territory, which was behind the iron curtain. So it became what in in uh, in the intelligence world we call a denied area. In other words, we couldn't establish any operations in there because we couldn't operate inside um, openly. We had everything had to be clandestine. So, in in terms of China, it was the same thing. We just said that the, that the barrier was a bamboo barrier, not a steel barrier. <clears throat> but effectively, it was the same thing. We couldn't operate. So, right at the border of Hong Kong, there were, of course, guards and fences and barriers and and that was called then the, the bamboo curtain and it existed 
throughout the borders of, of China, but none of them were, you know, the same as the one at, at, at Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, because it was a British colony, we could still, we had a, a station there, we had a consulate there, and that's, we lived there for, for several years and operated into what we called a denied area, which was China. So our operations were basically what we called legal travelers. And we would make efforts to get in touch with people who regularly traveled into China, to various parts of China. And then we would debrief them when they came back and, and get information about various, various different kinds of things military, economic, political subjects. Um, and, and then sometimes we would, it, we would be able to get somebody who had a family in a given area. And so he'd go and visit his brothers or his uncle or something. And we would be in touch with him and train him to, to and, and then task him with getting information about specific areas or buildings or airports or whatever it might be. Was uh, we also had a program with um, merchant marine who went into the Chinese ports, and it was the same thing there. We would we we knew they were going to a certain area, so we would they would be tasked with with if they could get pictures, but could get reporting on on the Chinese navy and the merchant marine and what they were doing. It was just standard intelligence collection techniques, but made all all that much harder because it was it was into an area where you couldn't uh, you couldn't travel on your own it in some ways it was similar to the areas of laos where i sent my teams because we couldn't go in there and in operations like that you know you're very dependent upon the integrity if, if i can use that word uh, of the the agents you're sending in I mean, there is a temptation you know, on some people's parts to cheat. Of, and, you know, you can have somebody who goes into an area like that, but, but, but he actually just sort of hides in a, in a closet and comes back and then gives you a big report of things he supposedly saw. And so it's hard to vet and to, and to confirm the information that you get from denied area agents or travelers. You, you use whatever techniques you can and you can you you can vet them and use use your the knowledge you do have to test you know where they went and what they actually did and um Hollywood has gets a lot wrong when it comes to espionage uh, movies and stuff like that um, can you kind of talk about the realities of your job and what Hollywood gets wrong Yeah, Hollywood is in, enthralled with sex and violence, and 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 we we you know <laughs> we don't get involved in either one of those things. Certainly, try to avoid violence at all costs. Um, it's that's just not. I mean, if you're in a paramilitary operation, that's almost there is going to be violence, and then then you do get you do get some of it. But largely, the James Bond movies and the others are, are gross exaggerations of what's really going on. Uh, a lot of our work is is reconf re research and and 
confirmations and reports writing and debriefings and, and briefings themselves, tasking, um, methods of communication, surveillance, counter-surveillance. There, in, in, in many ways, some of those things are sort of mundane, but those are the vital parts of what's going on in an intelligence operation. You, you, your, your, your contacts with the agent are few and far between and hopefully clandestine, of course. You don't want, him, you want anybody to know about it. So you're, you're trying to keep a low profile and stay out of the limelight. Absolutely don't go near the press or media uh, at all. Um, stay, stay behind the scenes. And, and you know that that doesn't sell in a in a, in a movie theater. They want the, the more, and and that's perfectly human and perfectly natural. They're trying to sell movies, so they're going to do it. The only movie I well, as an example of one movie I've seen that actually you know portrays the story accurately of of what's going on is was called Argo. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But it was about the rescue of some um, diplomats who were able to hide when the embassy in Tehran was overrun in 1979. Um, about six or eight people were able to run to the Canadian embassy and, and seek refuge. And then through a, a series of efforts with, with Canadians' help, we were able to get those people out and it was, it was just a lot of basic, um, research we got false documents that we could use with them. And we had to get somebody who had the nerve to go in there carrying all these things. And we had to have a cover story and it was, uh, it was all delicate and difficult, uh, but we actually were able to do it. And, this was, as I say, the only movie I've ever seen where they gave us credit for having having run a, a very successful operation and saved, you know, I guess six or eight people that were that were involved. We brought them out as as a, a movie team that was putting together a movie about some area of Iran and uh, able to fool them and able to get it done. But it was not a. It was. It was dangerous and it was suspenseful while it, while it was happening, but it took a lot of behind the scenes effort and a lot took in, in terms of, it took persuasion for some of the people to actually participate and go along with it. And they finally got them out on a Swiss air flight right up, right out of that, right under the noses of the Iranian officials. It's resisting the, the hoopla and the uh, the bright and spectacular. That's that's what that Hollywood veers toward, and that's what we veer away from. Now it's a great explanation, and I have seen that movie. Um, I thought it was also pretty awesome. Um, I uh, another misconception with uh, CIA is that everybody's like a bachelor. That you don't have families, but you lived with your family when you were in Hong Kong. Can you kind of talk about that uh, dynamic? Sure. Um, first of all, you got to have um, a meeting of the minds between the, the two people involved. And my wife was uh, 
actually also from the Midwest. And it was, it's a long story, but we, we were, we both enjoyed the prospects of, of new experiences and new cultures and living abroad. And we both were, you know, perfectly happy to, to, to raise a family. So we had, we got to Hong Kong with one child and my wife was with child and we left Hong Kong. We had four. So during those four years, we had three born and, and raising them in a, in a place like that is, you know, there's going to have, you're going to have some problems. We did have a, an ama that, that helped my, my wife, but, uh, she insisted on, on doing, you know, most of the things. And you, you try to live a perfectly normal life and, and work, work comes around that. You know, on my, I, I, of course, can schedule everything. And I was working with my contacts and I was able to make, you know, schedule things so that I, the evenings I was busy were, you know, late and it wouldn't bother her schedule. And we were able to, to meet a lot of, a lot of foreign diplomats and foreign business people. We were able to make contact in, for example, within the Scandinavian community in Hong Kong. And so we met, we had lots of friends who had children and their children and our children became friends and you, they were going to school. It just, you, it was just in a different environment that, but you know, the family life and I, I will argue and I have that, that my, my daughters have a different dimension to them than, than their peers because they have lived in foreign countries. They, they do understand foreign languages. They speak a couple. They, they, they know the culture. They know the cuisine. They, they have a, a different perspective than, than, than kids who maybe just grew up in Illinois or Ohio or, or Virginia. You know, they just, uh, that, that adds to their look at the world, I think. So, um, it, we we enjoyed it a lot. It was only when we our last tour was in Paris, and um, by then the kids were all grown up and all in college. But we had no trouble at all getting them to come and visit us on their breaks, summer break or spring break or whatever. We we kept United Airlines funded during that period by back and forth. They were perfectly happy to come over and visit. And then in your, in, I think it was your second tour, uh, can you talk about like how the cross-border operations from Hong Kong to China? Yeah, the as, as I was saying that we, we call that a legal traveler um, operation. These are people who had valid reasons to go into China from Hong Kong and then would come back. And it might be a family visit, it might be a company, a business um arrangement of some sort they were visiting a, a company or it might be international trade whatever it might was you know, we would make the contact with people who lived in hong kong and then essentially task them with requirements to report on in the areas of china that we knew they were going to go and visit so they would go up there um do their normal work and in the course of their normal work they would maybe take pictures of ships on the river or they might take pictures of of an industrial plant or they might just strike up conversations uh, 
with with various contacts up there and and come back with information that we couldn't get in any other way. And so in a, in a whole range of different subjects, we were able to collect information about what was going on, actually going on in China, you know, at that at, during that period. Right. Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense. I remember you saying that, but I was just a little confused. But that's great explanation. Um, and just before we hop off of uh, Hong Kong, well, is there anything that you want to cover on Hong Kong that we haven't talked about? No, Hong Kong was at the time was our window into China. That's the as close as any of us could ever could could get. And it was, you know, it was a the the, the one place where. China ops officers wanted to serve because a we could use our our Chinese language skill and and b we could be close to what was our the target we were trying to collect on. So Hong Kong is a fascinating place. It's a it's a little bit like, like an onion. The longer you're there, the more layers of it you can peel back, and it's it's a unique city in many different respects. I had was able during my career to serve in both Hong Kong and Paris. At, at one point or another, and both are, are really interesting places in different ways, of course. But but uh, Hong Kong is, and of course now it's it's back in Chinese hands, and it's changing or has changed dramatically. It's uh, I, I think it's going to lose its place as a financial center, and unfortunately, the people are without any civil liberties now that they used to have. It's unfortunate. And I wanted to go. I wanted to just touch on this uh, quickly because I think it's um, just interesting. Uh, you were in Greece, and I think it was in 1975. And at the time, you were on vacation, but you, because of your training and your experience in Hong Kong, being being able to uh, detect counter surveillance or surveillance, uh, you thought you picked yeah. up something. Yeah, actually, it wasn't. No, it was not a vacation. I was assigned in headquarters and I was assigned to the um, European division area that was covering the Chinese efforts in Europe. So I, I was on a TDY to Greece in order to interact and train some of the officers in the Greece station in Athens in, in, in how to collect on the Chinese target. And so I, I had been there a couple of days and, and worked with the station people and, and did a, a little bit of training. And it, it was all quite successful and it worked out well. And at the end, I was reporting to the station chief, uh, Dick Welch was his name, and about my visit and what we accomplished and what we was hoping. He said, great, great, okay, fine. And, and what did you think of the Acropolis? And I said, you know, I really haven't had time and I haven't been up there. I'll have to get that on my next visit. And he said, "Not a, not going to work. That's not you got. When you come here, you got to see it. So I can send you up there this afternoon in in my car." And I said, "You know, I I don't want to be a bother on." He said, "No, no, no. You got to go." So he did send me up to the Acropolis in his car, and it it's you know it's notable, I guess, because people you know the embassy. Knew, I couldn't be sure what happened, but when I got up there, I was walking around and I did pick up surveillance. I knew there were three guys that, that were following me. 
you know, they were being as discreet as they could maybe, but in that, in that crowd, there's everything's moving in the same direction at the same time. And it's not that hard to pick out. Um, I mean, it's not like in you're a busy city and people going in and out of various places. This is a flow. So I realized that they have no idea who they were, but I mean, we don't like that. Do we <laughs> for sure? So I, I went into a, 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 a bathroom on, on the edge of the Acropolis plot or the top there. And then I went out the back that I'd asked the guard, is there any other way down? And he said, yeah, if you want to walk, you can go that down back down there. So I, I slipped out the back and went down the trail, which was, you know, steep and ruddy, but I'm fine. Uh, and got down to the, to the city level, went into a shop and was scanning the area, see if anybody had come with me around. And I was, I realized I was clear. And so I, I, uh, got into a taxi, went back to the embassy and I and went right in and reported to him and said, look, you know, I think I just was under surveillance. He said, oh, it's probably local liaison. You're a new face. You're a new kid on the block here. And so they just check people out to see what's going on. And I said, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what the area, I don't know. Your, your affairs are different. So I'm taking you, but I, I will report this. And he said, okay, you know, that's fine. That's fine. I did. Two weeks later, he was assassinated and he's coming out of his house in the morning. He was shot and it was this November 17th terrorist organization, uh, in, in, uh, in Athens, in Greece. And, um, it, then it, then you put it together and, uh, it, it could be, it could have been that those guys, Seeing me in his car, seeing his car, that triggered you know them fastening on to me. I mean, we'll we'll never know, of course, the real answers. But it was uh, it very likely was the November seventeenth group that was that was following me, and then two weeks later, as I say, he was he was shot. And um, if we fast forward to uh, the 1980s, you became, from my understanding, the head of the CIA's new counter-terror group. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, the I, I had just come back from Hong Kong, um, and it, the um, terrorism was sort of just hitting us in the face. We had a we had an officer assassinated in Paris. We had the attack on. Sadat in Egypt. We had uh, airplanes hijacked in, uh, in the Middle East. We had a, a threat against Reagan by a Libyan terrorist. And, and of course, you know, the U.S. government response is use, use, usually is throw resources at it. So immediately across the intelligence community, all the organizations set up um, counterterrorism operations. <clears throat> At the time, as the agency, we had a, a group that was called, ironically enough, it was called the terrorist group. And it was just a, a small group that were monitoring what the terrorist groups were doing. But given these attacks on, on our interests and, and, and the attacks, the 
igniting of terrorism sort of globally, we decided we should we should focus more attention on that subject. So even though it was just a small unit, uh, I got assigned to to take that over and see what I could build out of it in terms of a counterterrorism capability. So of course the first thing I did was change the name. We're against it. We're not for it. So we made a counterterrorism, not the terrorist group, but counterterrorism group. And I started building the capability and bringing in you know, different forms of, of uh, assistance for us. We we brought in analysts, which was a big uh, change in, in the in the directorate of in operations of the clandestine service. Mixing operations people with analytic people was a very unusual. But in, in the terrorism arena, it made a lot of sense, so we were able to do it. And I brought in uh, technical capabilities, communications capabilities, um, bomb detectors, various groups that, that could, could help us. And we started expanding our contacts globally, making contact with liaisons all over the world and offered up training and um, crisis management training, military training, VIP protection, things like that, just to uh, to start really enhancing, you know, the ability to react and, and counter terrorism operations. And I, I did a lot of traveling at that time to various places in the world to to make the contacts and, and get the programs started, you know, in a, as, as quickly as we could. Uh, we had a crisis management team, a quick reaction team, we called it, that when it, when, a, when a terrorism incident occurred, we could immediately get in with in touch with the ambassador, our ambassador in that country, and say, "Here's this capability. We could get it out there to you, as, uh, starting right now, if you want." And you know, in the majority of cases, they just said, "Yes, please, right away." So we were able to enhance the capabilities of our station by putting on on the scene a group of people that were specifically trained to react to terrorism and, and, the, and the after aftermath of it. And there was one incident, incident that happened in Sudan in 1982. But I, I also wanted to ask, why would uh, the military not um, like do that hostage rescue or that type of mission? Why would the CIA do it instead? The, the CIA is just more nimble, more flexible more focused the military you know i mean we did cooperate with them when and use their capabilities from time to time but their ability to react as quickly and as efficiently as we could it just didn't exist they they're more cumbersome i mean i hark back to laos where you know we uh, we were able to we, we we were in touch at the time Early on, early on, they assigned a special forces team into Laos. Well, you know, they they arrive and they've got a, a, a battalion and they put a company of men here. And they put up tents with, with wooden floors. They have commissaries. They have kitchens. They get mail deliveries and have movies at night. And I mean, all those things are a part of how the military moves and functions. We would send in one guy to a village and, and coordinate and, and, our, and with, with a team of ties, maybe four or five more, 
and we do it. So it just, it's the difference in scale, the difference in approach uh, is, is significant. And the same thing applied really in, in terms of reacting to terrorism. That, uh, as I say, I, I know they'll argue and that this would be a debate, but, but the reality is we're, we're just more nimble and, and can get things done. I, I think Afghanistan is another example that, you know, we were there, we were there within uh, 10 days on the ground in North Laos, organizing, you know, the, the, the groups up there that were against the Taliban. And we, we welcomed in the military, of course, when they, when they did arrive. And when they did arrive, they did a hell of a good job there. But, but the fact is that, you know, it's a different, it's a different dimension. And it's a different approach. And we can, we can operate in s- smaller numbers with less of a logistics tail, with less demands, and we can get the job done. And the counter-terror group became, it started with 17 people, and then now it's like, I, was it maybe in the... Several hundred. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, no, it's, and I think that's a function of our bureaucracy and, and the way, I mean, we, as they say, we throw resources at the problems, and, and in, inevitably it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. By the time I left that group, it was about 100. And as I say, I brought in paramilitary trainers. Uh, I brought in um, technical trainers that you could operate um, audio devices and, and cameras and things. I brought in communications people. You, you, these are all capabilities that you can use and you need in specific situations in, in a hijacking or in a hostage receiving. But, but then, then it, then you start bringing in analysts, and so we got to have analysts for everything in the world. And you, you need instead of ten, we, you know, it ends up you've got uh, two hundred or so. So now, yeah, it's a big, big thing. And uh, although in today's world, it's going to start to diminish because now we're we're focused away from terrorism more or less, and back and now onto Taiwan and. Ukraine and Afghanistan and, you know, actual military operations. So those are active areas now, and the military, the Pentagon, is going to be more focused on, you know, tanks and artillery and missiles, whereas on counterterrorism operations, it's a, it's a whole different ballgame. So there are, there are differences that you have to take into account as you, uh, as you work in, in any of these different areas. It's interesting that you put it that way, and I think I remember reading it in your book that in in the '90s, uh, the CIA like like they went like their effort for uh, terrorism, they kind of cut um, the funding, and like you were, didn't have as much. Um... Right, right, right. We 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 were just we were we were seeking the peace dividend from the end of the Cold War, so a lot of our capabilities were cut. Notably, I think a language capabilities. We had less training in, in our language areas. We had, and we had fewer officers. So I mean, those are. I mean, it's it's like a big ship that takes a while to change course. But all during the '90s, we were reducing and cutting, and then suddenly after 9/11, well, it was a big shock, and everything started to build up again. But it was building up in 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 terms of counterterrorism operations and count. And terrorism activities. Now it's now it's shifting again, and now we're more focused on uh, 
conventional military operations, navies and air force and stuff like that. In your last, uh, if I'm correct, your last posting overseas in Paris, was that your seventh? Probably could be, yeah. I can't remember, to be honest with you, but yeah, that was my last one. And I had been to several before, yeah. And can you talk about uh, what that tour was like? Um, you also were the, was this the, your first chief of station? No, no, actually I had been a chief of station for a half of my tour, my last tour in Hong Kong. And then I had been chief of station in Brussels as well. Um, Brussels was um, largely a counterintelligence kind of an uh, environment that we were operating in. And then Paris was uh, just was my third, I think, chief of station job. Yeah. Okay. And um, can you talk about what what you did in Paris? Uh, did that also include the the jackal? Yeah, yeah. That that happened while I was in while I was in Paris. <clears throat> in Paris, um, a lot of our effort was was working with. The, the local services, the French services, internal and external. And so we were in, in liaison contact with them, you know, throughout the whole period. We had other operations as well, but, but that was a, a part of what we were doing. And at that point, we knew we were following uh, Carlos, the jackal. Um, but um, the French, he had, he had shot three... In French internal service officers, and they really wanted to get him. They were, you know, they had a special desire. And at one point, we came up with um, information about Carlos, which I, I passed on to them, and they really went at it strong. And the upshot of it was he was discovered, and we, we knew he was in uh, Khartoum, and, and we we passed that on and they, they, they used their capabilities and uh, combined with information we gave them. And we were able to uh, s snatch that villain, that nasty guy. He shot a lot of people, he killed a lot of people and it was a pleasure to see him placed into the uh, French prison in Paris where he will, I hope, spend the rest of his life. But he was also captured in like a unique way where he was going for an operation and like a vasectomy yeah, operation. Carlos, Carlos, while he was in um, Syria or Lebanon, I can't remember which one, he married a Palestinian woman, a young woman. And, uh, and he had had a vasectomy for reasons, I don't, I don't, whatever. And she, but she wanted to have children. So by that time they were in, um, in Khartoum and he decided to have an operation to reverse the vasectomy and using a surgeon in Khartoum. So right away, you know, his judgment is lousy. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. I, I, I can't even imagine people making decisions like that, but that was his decision. And of course we were on top of the whole thing and knew and, and of course, we, we passed that on to the French. And he, to my knowledge, I mean, this, this was explained to me. He went in and when he came out of the operation, 
and I don't, I, I, it, I have no idea how these things actually take place. You think of a, a being on a table with a surgeon there, but anyway, he came out and he was um, on a gurney. Then they were wheeling him out, and um, it was all prearranged. And they wheeled him outside, and the French strapped him onto the gurney. Without he was still a little groggy. They slapped him on and, and put put uh, tied him really onto the gurney, wheeled it right into a van, right out to the airport, and then they dragged him off and put him on an airplane and flew him to Paris. And uh, he he uh, I think never put it all together when he finally gained strength. But he initially thought he was in, it was the Israelis who had him, and that that really frightened him to death. Uh, but when he when he visibly was relieved, they said when he when they got close enough to Paris that they were talking to the to the uh, control tower and the control tower the, the language they were using was French, and he realized that and then was was relieved that he wasn't in, in the Israelis. But you know he went into France. They tried him and uh, he was convicted of several murders and he's now in the I think it's called L'Enfant Prison, for some reason, in uh, in Paris. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that he didn't want to get captured by the Israelis. And he was like, oh, thank goodness I, I got captured by somebody else. The Israelis used the death penalty you know, in situations like his, and he knew that. The French wouldn't, wouldn't, so. In fact, I think, I, last I heard, Carlos had actually married his um his lawyer who was a not a very attractive middle-aged woman but he they allow him conjugal visits was what i was told so i'm not sure he's still i don't know what age he is now he must be getting well into his 70s so i'm not sure where he stands but i'm pretty sure he's still in the slammer so that's good that is good um can you talk about uh, what happened in um, Paris with uh, your cover getting blown? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I was declared, and that means that the French, of course, knew I was the chief of station of our station in Paris. And, uh, I was known to the all of the French services, and they knew me. And, and, and we were working in, in a lot of areas with them, and very productively so. But at one point, um, and this, this all was brewing, you know, long before I even got to Paris. Well, we didn't, we didn't realize it, but one of our officers had, um, had, had been compromised and we don't know how it was, but she, you know, running something not, not effectively with a tradecraft. So she had been compromised and they knew uh, of, of one of the agents that we were dealing with. So that of course, you know your your whole defense perimeter is is breached, and you're in you're in big trouble you're, because uh, you're thinking you're operating carefully and securely, and in fact you're not. In this one instance, there's a there's a hole in your fence, as, as so to speak. So at, um, after I had been there about a year, there was internal politics going on in France. There was a presidential election, and they. The Minister of the Interior, 
who was the boss of the intelligence services, the internal and the external services, you know, got caught up in a scandal um, for having um, broken the, the breached the phone connections of, of a rival, and it was a political you know hubbub in France. So, in, in what we were finally able, we concluded was that to distract the attention from him. He brought this case forward and released it to the press. The the agent involved was pretty low level and wasn't you know any kind of a menace. And, and I think you know they were just keeping it under their under their uh, cover, waiting because it wasn't that much of a danger to them. But it was a it was a, they could bring it to us anytime they wanted to. I mean it's just this is much like. The FBI here watching what the French are doing, and we have on on many many occasions we've caught the French, um, you know, in our affairs. And and what happens is that the head of the FBI calls in this the French station chief and says, Pierre, listen, get that guy out of here. We don't want him. Stop doing that. We don't like it. So get him out of here. In this case, because of the political situation in France at the time. They called in our ambassador and and read her the riot act and showed her some pictures of this guy meeting with with one of our officers. Well, of course, the ambassador that's that's a lot of rain on her parade. So she um, came back to the embassy and called me, and I it happened. It just so happened I happened to be in Rome at the time meeting doing another operational effort, and so my deputy called me and said, you better come back to Paris as soon as you can, which I did. And I met with her and she said, you know, what about this? And I said, that's bad news. That is absolutely bad news. And so we had to try to reconstruct what had, what had happened. And uh, sure enough, you know, one of our agents had been compromised uh, and, and we were unaware of it. So that, that meant we had had a, a couple of meetings with him that were controlled by the French clandestinely unknown to us. And so they had some photographs and things. Well, it, it, it became uh, international news. It was in the papers here. It was in the papers all over the world, you know, the, and, and of course, a lot of the uh, exaggerations, you know, that the, this, this, there was a, they, they uh, alleged a sexual aspect to it and, just because our officer happened to be a female. So it was a counterterrorism compromise that, that got way more publicity than usual, than it should have had. In the end, the, um, the French services essentially apologized to me and said, you know, that's not the way it should be handled. We're sorry about that. You know, that's not the way it should be. It was handled in your country, you know, we've but it, but it, um, it essentially ended my tour because they neither they were unable to deal with me anymore, and I, I spent a couple more months before I came back and a little bit a little bit before my it would have been, <clears throat> and it was a counterterrorism um, issue here in Washington, and so the, the bureaucrats got their hands into it. Congress wanted to have a briefing and just uh, it was. 
from a molehill, so to speak, sort of a classic example of just that. But, but it was a dismal end to a, a very enjoyable tour I had in Paris. And it ended up being the end of my career as well. So such is uh, one of the perils of our, of our occupation. I mean, these things happen and you, you just have to live with the results. That's all. And, uh, but then afterwards, uh, the CIA behind closed doors awarded you the highest medal that they give to uh, CIA officers, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, that's a medal that's given for a, um, a, a successful, a strong career. And, you know, I think a lot of people understood when, when, you, when you get down to it, I mean, I was the chief of station. I was not on the streets meeting agents. It was not my compromise. It was not my poor trade craft. It was not, a, you know, essentially it was not my fault, if you will. I mean, I was the leader and I have to assume responsibility, which I did. And I talked to all of my officers and you know, we, we dealt with it as best we could. But um, it was something that was, it had been lying there for a, for a while before, we, before I even arrived on the scene. So I don't think that that became a big stain for me and that's why they decided that the, the results, the culmination of my career overall had been, I mean, I had successes uh, in Hong Kong and in Laos and in a lot of places. So, so I did get that medal and I was quite, quite proud of it. I was quite happy to have, it, was, it made, it made a, amends for what was a bad situation in, in the Paris investment. You no doubtedly had an amazing career. Um, there was another award that I saw, the Donovan Award, which is Wild Bill Donovan, who we, we spoke about earlier. Um, why does the CIA award officers that medal? Donovan Award is, is strictly within the clandestine service. It's not an agency-wide or anything. It's just our, our specific operations. Now they call it the Operations Directorate, but it, it's uh, and it's given for excellence in any given area that you're working in and over a specific time. Ironically, that one came to me in, I think about 92 or something. I had, I had done, I had done some work um, at the headquarters level that, that was uh, very well received and it, it reorganized portions of the director of the clandestine service. And, and we ended up in a, in a more positive state and had, I mean, it was a modernization, I guess, in some ways. Uh, it, I, I can't go into all the details, but it, it, it turned out quite well, and I was given uh, recognition in the form of the Donovan Award. Yeah. And um, when a CIA officer gets killed in the line of duty, uh, they get a star on the CIA memorial wall. Uh, can you kind of talk about... Um, just that, like the CIA memorial wall, um, you had some friends who unfortunately passed away. Yeah, I go to that ceremony every year if I can. And uh, it started in the early 1990s. Um, I am not sure the origin exactly. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but um, we we decided that, that, you know, the officers lost in line of duty. And, um, merited some 
special recognition. And so in the lobby of the headquarters, is uh, there are stars etched into the marble wall in recognition of individuals. And then there's a service that explains each one how they were, what happened and why they were added to that, to that wall. So every year, and unfortunately, we add a couple every year, which is too bad, but uh, it's, it's just a, to honor them. And, and, it's, and it's the book that's there that lists their names um, is called the Book of Honor. And uh, it, it, we add to it when, when it airs. And, and unfortunately, I think we have something a little over 100 stars now up there. And uh, I am, I personally know this, uh, about 20 of them that, uh, that I, I worked with or knew during our careers. But mind you, I was there for 35 years. So I, and, and in the early years in places like Laos, we lost uh, several, or the Congo or Beirut. Um, so, so I, I got to know um, a number of people, and then we lost them. But it's um, I, I'm always I, I, I'm a strong believer in that, that recognition, and the families I think appreciate it, and and they're always invited to these services every year, and they come and and celebrate uh, you know the work and the lives of those people. And you you said you uh, served 35 years with CIA under 13 directors. Um, who is your favorite director and who is your least favorite director, if you don't mind sharing that? Sure. I, I, excuse me, I, I mentioned that in the book. I'm not sure. I, um, Dick Helms is um, a favorite. And I mean, not, he was an operations officer. He was one of us, as it were. I mean, you know, we, I knew him particularly well. He, he was a guy who, um, first of all, he, he came to visit me at Walter Reed and I was a, you know, a lowly nothing as it were. I mean, just a very low level officer and he was the director of the CIA. And yet he came out to Walter Reed to visit me and, you know, encourage me and, and welcome me back. If I, if I, so, and I already, I had a lot of positive feelings for him anyway. Um, and he was the one who was at the time of my uh, crash in the Congo, he was the director of the operation of the clandestine service. And Dick Helms is the one, as soon as the word came back that I had been found, so to speak, they knew where I was. They, he is the one who called the secretary of defense and said, we need the airplane to go and get him and bring him back to the burn center. And he, he called McNamara and they had that conversation and McNamara said, yeah, okay. And boom, and they did it. And this happened within literally hours. They had the whole thing in, in motion and the plane was on the, in the air to come and get me. Uh, so I had positive feelings about Dick Helms anyway. <laughs> but then then when he became the director and he came out to visit me and, and we knew you know, each other, and, uh, we had played tennis a couple times. And, uh, and, then, and then at the, at the very end, when after I'd retired, um, he invited me to lunch at his country club over in Maryland. And he said, Dick, you know, you, you've had some, in an unusual career, you've had some unusual experiences. 
and you really ought to write them down, do a, write a book. And I had never considered, I mean, I was one who said, no, God, that's not our, that's not our job. These are this is clandestine service. We don't write about stuff like that. But he said, look, if, if, if we don't write it, academics will or journalists will, and they'll get it wrong because they don't really know, you know, what kinds of things we do or why we do them or whatever. So I saluted and dutifully sat down and, and wrote a book, which I, which I never ever expected to be an author, to be a, to, to have a book on my, but in the end, I'm, I'm glad I wrote it. I'm glad I, uh, it, it's out there. I mean, it's, uh, it is, it is a, an eyewitness account. I, whatever anybody wants to say about it, it is, I know it's accurate and it's true. And so, so those are, and it's it it doesn't portray the Hollywood version. It's it's uh, it's a lot. I think more down to earth than that. But uh, Dick Helms was, um, he, in, in many ways, he, he certainly became my favorite. The least favorite probably was um, maybe Admiral Turner. Uh, there were a couple, but he was close. And he he just he came to us from the Navy. And he wanted to be called Admiral instead of Director, and we were offended by that. And he was, you know, he he caused a great purge, you know, fired a, a lot of people. I mean, I that could well have been something that was necessary, but the way he handled it seemed to me to be bad. He also was one, he worked with the Jimmy Carter administration, and they, you know, they were, they had... Human rights um, was was very dominant, and I don't. I'm perfectly su- strong. I support human rights, but they were telling us, you know, you can't deal with somebody who, you know, who might be a bad person, or, you know, not not. And it, in terms of us collecting information, for example, on terrorism, or on narcotics, or on money laundering, you know. You, you're, you're not going to, you can't recruit and deal with a Boy Scout or a choir boy and get information like that. You have to deal with the people who are doing it, who are involved in that, in that sort of thing. And you have to, you know, compromise them or recruit them and get them to report to you. But they're not the sweetest guys in the world. You're going to deal with some nasty people. And if, you, if, you, if you're forbidden to do that, you're, you're hindering the service. So you're then saying, you're, you're, you're just diminishing your capability and you can't do those things. So Turner had, I think, a distorted, a misguided view of what intelligence is or, or can be. So he, he ranked low on my list. And you're the author of two books, but I read your uh, more recent one, The Craft We Chose, and for one, me personally, I thought it was really like one of the best memoirs i've read i'm not just saying that i I really enjoyed it i thought you put in some like humorous quips uh there was one about um i think you were in laos and you you compared yourself to uh will chamberlain because you could play basketball um i think you were in laos is that right yeah 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 that was well actually it was not companome yeah i was was, i mean over there i was tall and i'm in uh in the United States, I'm, I'm not that, I'm only, not even, barely six feet, so, <laughs> a different, different story. 
Um, and just some final thoughts. Uh, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think might be interesting to include? Um, no, but I mean, I, well, I've, just my reasons for writing the book uh, are, there's a couple. One, of course, I was, I was taken by Dick Helms's view on it, saying that if we didn't write it, it would get, it would be wrong. So that was a, a one reason. Another reason was that, um, you know, my family, I have had this platoon of daughters and they didn't really understand or ever know what I was doing during their, their, as they were growing up. And so now it's a record out there for them that this is, this is why, you know, I was late to dinner one night, or this is why something was, was, was different than you would have expected. So it's good in that respect as well. But also I, I, I have this, maybe this forlorn hope that people will get a better idea and, and understand more about what intelligence is all about. And you know, just to, to overcome the Hollywood version and give an, an accurate account of what the world is, is, is what's going on in the intelligence community. It, it is important that, that, that our leaders have accurate information about what's going on. I mean, that's how they make their policy decisions. So it's important that we have good information and a strong community. I, I despair at some of the things that have been happening in recent years, but you know, that's, that, that's the way it goes. The bottom line is that we do need uh, intelligence capability and we do need people who are you know, willing to go overseas and, and get into areas that are out of the ordinary and different.